Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. My name is Creighton, and I'm an alcoholic. And I haven't found necessary to take a drink, go to jail, or steal anything over $50 since the 1st of March of 1976. And for that, I'm just real, real grateful this afternoon. Um, you know, this is, uh, uh, as that baseball player said, this is deja vu all over again when I, I got to meet uh, uh, Mike. <clears throat> And I knew Mike when he was just a gleam in his daddy's eye, long before he was born. It's a true story. Bruce and I went to flight school together uh, a long, 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 long time ago. If it hadn't been for Bruce's dad, I would not have completed that flight school because I'm a hell of a football player, but I'm dumber and dirt when it comes to uh, aerodynamics. And his dad pulled me through um, a real tough course in aerodynamics. And um, for that, I will always be grateful. And we never know when our paths are going to cross. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Tom for, for inviting me and the rest of the committee. Um, and uh, my wife and I are enjoying the hotel. Air conditioning works fine. Sheets clean. Towels are so fluffy, I can hardly close my suitcase when I leave. And I think it's just, I think it's just wonderful to be here and get to see old friends like uh, Smitty last night and and Cease and uh, Keith and, and uh, Cricket. And uh, gosh, we haven't seen each other in so long, and it's just, it, it's just grand to be here. And uh, Bill, uh, wherever Bill D is, and. And lots of friends, uh, uh, and I want to I want to tell you um, how grateful I am that you haven't had a nap this afternoon, and are sitting here because the two o'clock speaker on Saturday afternoon, hell, that's nap time for drunks, you know. <laughs> and I'm just real glad that you're here to hear me. I do two things before I ever start a talk, and the first is this, and this was. Um, I was ordered to do this uh, uh, a long, long time ago by uh, uh, my sponsor, and he said, before you ever start an AA talk, I want you to read five things. And we call these the five observations of conference speakers. And it's just real simple. And this is the way it goes. Number one, uh, AA speakers are just plain drunks. No different from you, believe me. Number two, they're not brighter or more sober or more successful or more spiritual. They're just more eager to hear the sound of their own voice. (laughs) Number three, A speakers are not special people. We come in all shapes, sizes, periods of sobriety, and levels of humility just like you. And number four, use caution when you hear any AA speaker who holds special after-the-session meetings, uh, closed-door sessions for inner circle spirituality. (laughs) Because I can guarantee you they're not, they're not 
uh, carrying a message, but they may be spreading a disease. <laughs> and number five, beware of any A speaker who uses an inordinate amount of profanity. It's immature, it's inappropriate, it's unacceptable, and it's certainly not part of any AA program we're familiar with. Well, the first time I read those, I sat down. I didn't have anything else to, else to say. You know, that, that was it. The second thing I, I read is per, perhaps the most important thing that I'll ever, 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 ever read in an AA meeting. And for the newcomers especially, for the newcomers, I say this. And it's from, it's on page 30 from chapter 3. It's called More About Alcoholism. And it simply says this. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our own drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow, someday, we will control and enjoy our drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. Here's the kicker. First sentence, second paragraph. We learn that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were real alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. Well, on March the 1st of 1976, through a series of misunderstandings, a little tough luck, I shook two in a Lady Kimmore box under a bridge in North Kansas City, Missouri. It had not been my intent to get there, nor had it been my uh, plan in life to uh, have uh, high school counselor said, well, what are you going to do with your life, Creighton? I said, well, I'm going to end up as drunk and live under a bridge. You know, what the hell? Uh, I just got there, just like you did. Um, that day dawned like uh, a day hadn't in my life. Uh, and uh, now, where are you going? <laughs> Can't take it. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Should have gone before you sat down. <laughs> I always one or two, isn't there? Yep. But that dawn day, that day dawned like a, a day hadn't in a long, long time. And what happened was, see if you can identify. I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. I was just in that limbo, and that's the worst place for an alcoholic to be in their life, is in that is in that state where you can't get drunk and you can't get sober. It's the most miserable feeling in this world, and that's where I was that morning. But a lucid thought had come to me, and, and the thought was simply this. I don't want any more of this. I simply want off the treadmill. I want out. And the only way I know to get out of this lifestyle is to take my own life. I wasn't going to, you know, leave notes or, or, or call anybody if I'd, even if I'd had the telephone. 
I just want it out. Well, I was dressed in my wardrobe. Had an old pair of marine green wool britches on, zippers rusted shut. And I had a, a, an old pair of uh, yellow tennis shoes. They had originally been white, but they were yellow for the same reason the zippers rusted shut. <laughs> and uh, I had a... Uh, I had an old raggedy shirt on leather <laughs> and a leather flying jacket, and that was my wardrobe. I was down to it. I had 40 cents to my name. 40 cents to my name. I took that 40. I hadn't had a bath in a long time. Hadn't had a bath in a long time. And I took that 40 cents, and I went down to the bus stop uh, there on the corner of uh, North Old Traffic Way at the base of the ASB Bridge. And I got on that bus, and I could have had any seat on that bus I wanted. <laughs> and I rode out to this house where I knew a car was parked. And the car belonged to good friends of mine. They had been good friends and would be friends again. And I got on that bus, and I, I breathed a sigh of relief. And probably for the first time in years and years and years, I was at peace. Perhaps like you've been. Because I had made that decision. Didn't know it at the time, but I had made this decision to take my own life. I rode out to this house. I broke into the garage. Found a vacuum cleaner hose. Put one end in the tailpipe, the other end in the car got the keys, put them in the ignition, got in, turned the ignition on, and nothing happened. And if you're bent on suicide, you've ruined your whole day right there. <laughs> but here's what happened. Out of futility, out of the absolute futility that I couldn't even kill myself, I screamed out something to the effect of God, if there is a God... Please, please do something for me, because I can't even kill myself. And I cried and cried and cried that release. And I love Chuck Chamberlain. I love to hear him say it when he used to talk about page 63 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he says it's all about, and then he had just yelled it out, surrender. And that's what I did. Didn't know it at the time, nor, just like you, nor did you know at the time. But we surrendered. We have to, at some time in our lives, surrender, or we wouldn't be sitting here this afternoon. And I surrendered that day, and I had no more idea that that was the last day I'd ever take a drink. I had that, you know, that was the farthest thing from my mind. Because when you're in that kind of condition, you need a drink bad. But I broke into that house, and I made a, a phone call. Because the next thought that came into my mind, have you thought about AA? And I thought I knew all about AA. In 1950, just like this guy sitting here on the front row that we heard last night, and by the way, if you didn't hear Smitty, for God's sakes, buy the tape. It's the finest talk I've ever heard him make, and I've known him for a long time. But in 1950, my dad, who'd been a bad, bad drunk, lived in Charlotte, North Carolina. 
uh, he hocked a Vicuna coat at a Crosby radio, and he took his son, me, to the first international conference in Cleveland, Ohio, in 1950. And there was only about, oh, probably 14 or 15 of us kids. And I was a pimply-faced, puke, 15-year-old kid, and we went to this we went to this uh, international convention, and there is a guy who is very, very controversial on AA, still is, but he took us kids, he took us kids under his wing, he and his wife. His name was Clarence, and Clarence and Betty took us, and they introduced us to Bob, uh, to Smitty's dad and to Bill and Sister Ignatia and Sam Shoemaker and Dr. Harry Tebow and all the big shots. And all these people and took good care of us. And I was so impressed with, I thought that this was the greatest organization in the world because my dad, who'd been such a bad drunk, all of a sudden loved his, his, his son. Hell, he had always loved me. He just didn't know how to show it. But we had the best time on that trip and I got to know my dad a little better. And I thought AA was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I knew it all had to do with willpower. All had to do with willpower. Because all you folks that have been such bad drunks, and it took willpower to stop drinking. And my dad, back, those, back in those days, they made lots of 12-step calls. And we had a basement in our house, and so that's where they'd bring the drunks. And guess what they fed them? Peraldehyde, the old, the old uh, Cleveland and Akron uh, uh, solution. Uh, Doctor Bob's uh, solution was uh, sauerkraut and uh, um, stewed tomatoes, peraldehyde, and uh, coke syrup for the heaves for, for nausea, and Cairo syrup or honey and orange juice, and that's what they fed him down in the basement. And we only had one door to that basement, so, you know, they were trapped. Once they got down there, uh, you know, there they stayed. And you could hear them shaking and, 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 and carrying on at night. And I thought to myself, don't miss this. I thought to myself, I'll never, ever, ever, ever drink because I don't want to be that way. And little did I realize I didn't have a darn thing to do with it. It was already in the cards for me, for whatever reason. But that's what I thought I knew about AA, willpower. So on that day of March the 1st of 1976, I broke into that house and I picked up the phone and I, with old mucusy eyes and a hand that was shaking like a peach orchard boar, I'd looked in that phone book and I found that phone number down there in North Kansas City and I called them about one o'clock in the afternoon. Now this is before the vogue of noon meetings. Somebody answered that phone. Bob uh, Smitty was talking about coincidences last night. There are none. Somebody answered that phone, and they, of course, the first two things you ask a new drunk, dumbest questions in the world. Number one, are you in trouble? <laughs> Did you ever know a drinking drunk that would say, oh, yes, I'm in a lot of trouble? No, no. series of misunderstandings, a little tough buck, 
that a lot of people just don't understand me, you know, but I'm all right. And the second dumbest question is, do you have a car, you know? Well, I live under this bridge at the time, and, uh, you know, well, I didn't want him to think so. I was some Johnny-come-lately, so 15 minutes later, I was driving a stolen car <laughs> that had started this time to my first AA meeting, and another thought came to me. I wonder if I'm bad enough to have to go to AA, you know. <laughs> the rest of my wardrobe hadn't had a bath in a long time, had, did not have a suit of my name, and off I went. And I walked into that AA hall. It was upstairs above the savings and loan at 1812 and a half North Swift Avenue in North Kansas City, Missouri. The bar was on one side. I knew where that bar was. And the slammer and the police station were on the other side. And I sure as heck knew where that was. But I'd never had any money, so I didn't, I didn't ever put it in the savings and loan. And I had no idea there was an AA hall above that savings and loan. The story used to be, if you can get upstairs to that AA hall, then after 90 days or so, you're going to have little money to put in the savings and loan. You don't have to go back to the bar, and you sure as heck don't have to go back to jail ever again. I walked up those steps, and the only time I've ever done this in 27 years of continuous sobriety was I knocked on the door, and somebody said, come in. And I walked in, and there he was. This guy was standing there, and he had a grin on his face. I mean, he had a grin from ear to ear. And he had that hand stuck out, and I literally had to turn around to see in the world <laughs> who he was grinning at. Because not many people grinned at Creighton Pendarvis in those days. Not many people smiled at me. But he was... And he stuck that hand of AA out. He stuck your hand out. He stuck the, the, the fellowship's hand out. And he says, hi, I'm Jack. Welcome. And I stuck an old mucusy, dirty, filthy, shaken hand out. And I said, I'm Creighton Pendarvis. And he said, would you run that name by just one, <laughs> one more time, you know? <laughs> Listen, that name is half Irish and it's half Greek. And I didn't know where to stay drunk or open a restaurant for years. You know? <laughs> but I said, <clears throat> with all the modesty that I could muster at that time, this new story, I said, you can call me Captain. Because I wanted him to realize immediately that he was dealing with an airline captain. And he could probably tell that I was between trips, you know, just to stop by for a minute. And he looked at me so funny. And he said, well, I'll call you Penn. And we sat down there and we started talking about, gosh, I don't know what. But... There, the, the traditions were on one side, big big traditions on one side. The steps were on the other side, just like there are in so many AA halls. And I looked up at those steps, and I saw that word, and I turned to Jack, and I said, Jack, I'm not going to be able to make this. And he says, don't worry about that word God. And I thought, how the heck did he know? But he knew. 
eight o'clock start uh, came around, um, and before that, uh, I started shaking pretty bad. And about uh, two thirty or three o'clock in the afternoon, I was shaking so bad that Jack said those magic words to a drinking drunk. He says, "You look like you need a drink," and I thought, "What a deal this is." And Jack went down to his car, and like so many old-timers, and some of us still do, we carry a jug in the trunk of our cars for guys named Creighton. And he brought a jug up, and I took my last drink of alcohol in the AA hall sometime in the afternoon of March the 1st of 1976. And I did what every drinking drunk would, ever, would do, and I smoothed out. And I smoothed out, and I had that little necessary nap, and at 8 o'clock that night, the meeting started. How it works was read, and I convulsed. Boom, right on the floor. Now, we had a lot of folks in that uh, in that group that we call golden slippers. In and out, in and out, in and out, you know, back and forth in the program. And these old golden slippers were gathered around this guy flopping on the floor, and they looked like a tree full of owls, you know, watching watching me flop, and they said, ooh, that really does happen, doesn't it? You know, we've, we've heard about this, but we've never seen a live one, you know, and there I was flopping, and I can guarantee it's better to be a watcher than a flopper any time. <laughs> but old Doc Newton was there that night, and they carried me back in the back room and laid me on a couch, and the members of the North Kansas, don't miss this, don't miss this. The members of the North Kansas City Alcoholics Anonymous group literally saved my life. Literally saved my life. They, they went back to the kitchen and guess what they got? The peraldehyde, the orange juice and the honey, and the Coke syrup, and Doc Newton went down to his car and got a sedative of, of a hypo of some kind. Gave me a hypo, and they started feeding me that stuff. And I laid on that old couch just like you would have, filthy dirty, and vomited that old green bile in a little tin pan. And the members of the North Kansas City group hung in there and got a wet washcloth and put on my forehead. And they said, it's going to be okay, Creighton. You're going to be all right. And I thought if I heard that one more time, I'd die just in spite of it. <laughs> because, you see, my ego was such that I was so embarrassed that I wanted to die. Because, you see, I didn't want you to see my red raw meat underneath this facade. Because I, I didn't want you to realize that I was a bum. You already knew that. You already knew me better than my mother did. Just like I know the faces I'm staring at better than your mama knows you. Because we are just alike. We have different clothes. We have different professions. We have different educations. We have different this and different that. But up here and in our souls, we're exactly, exactly the same. We know each other that well. I know what makes you tick, and I know, and you know what makes me tick. I know what buttons to push on you, and you sure as heck know what buttons to push on me. 
we know each other that well. And that's the commonality of the disease called alcoholism. And that's why God has, in his inimitable wisdom, has given us the ability to save lives, to save another drunk, Smitty's dad, and, and Smitty's mom knew exactly how to work with Bill Wilson, the con, the conist of, of con men. And that's how we got, that's why we're here today, because of those two men. And because of this old geezer sitting right here who I love more than life itself. Because of his dad and his family. And because of this kid sitting right here whose father is not an alcoholic. But the byproduct of those people right there are sitting here. That's how our paths cross sometimes. You know, the, the, the journey. The journey. But that day I knew nothing about this. That day I was so full of me. And what it was, was ego. The ego of embarrassment and fear. That little four-letter word that will kill a lot of us in this room. Fear. Fear of being found out. Fear of being found out that we're phonies. Fear that we are not what we really appear to be. And that day, I wanted to die in spite of myself, but you wouldn't let me. And you literally saved my life. You literally saved my life. And I didn't want you to. Well, the next day, <clears throat> dawn, and you decided the captain needed to bath. Boy, I agreed with that. <clears throat> so you took the captain's clothes off and didn't and found out the captain didn't wear underwear in those days. <laughs> My drink of choice had become aqua velva, and uh, aqua velva and fruit of the looms went for about the same price. And guess which one? You know. <laughs> so you took, you know, this is a true story, you took the clothes down to this uh, wash chair right around the corner, and about an hour and a half later you came back and you said, we got some good news and some bad news. And uh, now those pants kind of shrunk up in the crotch. You know, you're going to have to work those out a little bit. Those old wool britches. But the zipper's unstuck. What a deal that is. <laughs> you know. And uh, the shoes are white again. They look like Aladdin's. They're kind of curled up on the on the ends there. But you, you can work those out. And the shirt just evaporated. We don't know what the hell happened to it, but... It's gone. But that's the way I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I was ungrateful, and uh, I was phony, and uh, but I was clean. And uh, uh, the people loved me back into life. About um, three or four weeks later, uh, I'd hung, hung around that club, and I didn't have any place else to go. And uh, I stole my first big book. And if there's any newcomer in here, uh, before you get real honest, steal a big book. You can pay us back later. <laughs> and about uh, about three weeks later, I was standing up, uh, or I was sitting in the back row where all the 
nothing against the people sitting in the back row in this room, but that's where all us newcomers sat. We called it Wino Row back there. And, uh, you know, we don't gossip in AA, but we share because we're very concerned about others. And uh, <clears throat> we... Uh, <clears throat> We were sitting back there and said, well, that looks like an easy score over there, you know, or what about th that one, you know. And, and actually, the, the, the best meeting is not right now. The best meeting will be after the meeting when we get all those in-depth inventories taken, you know, about, well, did you see who she was with or did you see who? Well, they'll never stay sober. Well... <clears throat> And we were back there, and uh, this old geezer was talking. Uh, and this 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 guy, uh, this guy was older than Cecil. You know, if if if, and he was he was standing. He was uglier than Cecil too. You know, and he was standing up there, and he had this great big blown up mugshot of himself. He was holding it up when he'd been thrown the slammer out in Hayes, Kansas, for a DWI. He was holding it up, and he says, uh, <clears throat> like Cecil, he says. Uh, now, there I am drunk, and here I am sober. And again, like Cecil, he's always going to look better drunk than he ever would sober. You know. So, he's standing up there, and, and, and I'm thinking, God, you know, where do they get these guys? You know, Ugh. And the basket was coming around, the collection basket was coming around, I thought I was more blessed to receive than give in those days. And my hand was in there. And all of a sudden I feel this guy's arm on my hand and, and I look up and it's this old geezer and he says, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And I'd been caught. And he says, and by the way, son, I'm your new sponsor. <laughs> He says, we drew straws for you. I lost. And a guy with the name, a guy with the name of Ken Halstead became my sponsor in the, in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. God love Ken Halstead and all like him. Because he was one of those sponsors that was a, a hard-hearted sponsor that had a heart like a marshmallow right in here and he got me down in that big book and we started we started with the appendix started the first page and we went through the big book and i'd like to tell you that you know that i'm a quick study i'm dumber and dirt so we would go through that book and go through that book and go through that book but what was what what was catching on to me was that ken had the patience of job and, and Ken knew all about me before, you know, before I'd ever opened my mouth. And Ken became a banker. Now, I'm probably the only one that ever, that ever uh, hung a lot of paper in AA. Uh, uh, for those of you uh, with little thin blue lips, that means I cashed a lot of hot checks. And so we started making restitution. And I got a job. And uh, I, uh, you know, I told Ken, I said, well, you know, I'm, uh, he says, you, uh, you, you've been around here for about a month. And um, 
uh, you're not working. I said, well, I'm waiting for the airline to call me back. Of course, <laughs> they'd taken my license away from me for, you know, a, a year or two before that. He says, well, you need some employment. So <clears throat> I became a uh, China mechanic, uh, dishwasher, just so. <laughs> and uh, I was washing dishes at the Gold Buffet, which was right around the corner from the uh, from the uh, 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 AA Hall. And they'd taken up a collection for me, and I lived at the Ben Bolt Hotel. Anybody ever been to North Kansas City, Missouri? Okay, the Ben Bolt Hotel is 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 clean. It's a clean little flop right up the street. Uh, I had a light bulb hanging down uh, uh, from the from the center of the room, bathroom down the hall, but it, and it had a little a little cot, uh, cot uh, change of sheets once a week, clean towel every three days, and I think it was three dollars or four dollars a night. And they'd taken up the collection for me, and all of a sudden it was it was the nicest bed and it was the nicest place I'd ever I'd ever had. I'd been down there for about uh, three or four weeks, and uh, uh, I'm probably the only person in the room that when they were new in AA, they couldn't sleep. <laughs> you know, um, and I tossed and I turned and I fidgeted, and it was up and down and all around that room, and I paced and paced and paced and paced. Uh, if I'd had a treadmill, I would have walked 150 miles, I know, in that little room all night long. And one night I was so mad at myself because I couldn't go to sleep. And I had to be at work at 5.30 in the morning. And it was about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was laying on that little cot. You know, it looked like a tree full of owls. And I had the big book that I'd stolen. And all of a sudden I opened it up. And I flopped open to page 63. And I read those magical, magical words that told me that I was going to walk a new, a new way. And that I was going to be reborn. And that I was going to uh, uh, say a prayer that would relieve me of the bondage of self. And I fell in love with page 63. And I got one of the most blissful night's sleep I've ever had in my life. And that started me on my journey. Now, did I auto automatically the next morning get up, walk on water, and glow in the dark and all that? Of course not. Was I a little more honest? I don't know. I don't know. But something happened to me that gave that gave me a, a, enough impetus that I knew that I was going that, that something had happened to me. Something had happened to me. Well, I was washing dishes at the Gold Buffet, going to meetings, and I had a, a checking account. And I didn't want a checking account because I, I didn't want to cash any more hot checks. So Ken went with me to the to the bank, and we opened this checking account. And then on Friday, I would and he kept the checkbook. He wasn't dumb. He kept the checkbook and he wrote the checks, and I would sign the checks on Friday uh, after, uh, Friday evening after the meeting. And you you know here I am, uh, a big time uh, international uh, airline pilot. Uh, flew nice people. I was a captain on uh, international flights all over the world. And uh, on on Friday evening, I was sitting there with my sponsor signing checks for ten, fifteen, and twenty dollars, and sent to people that I'd written hot checks to. And I was starting my financial amends. And that's the way I started my program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
slowly but surely. About uh, two or three months into the program on Saturdays, my duties were to set up the chairs for the Saturday night meeting in a hall about a third this size. And I would mop the floor, and I was setting the, cha the chairs up, uh, and Ken came in in the afternoon, <clears throat> just the two of us sitting there. And uh, uh, he came up, and Ken was not an affectionate man, but he, he had his arm up on the back of my chair, and he gave my, my shoulders a little squeeze, and he said, Son, what step do you think you're on? Now, I'm three months sober, okay? Three months sober. And I, without batting an eye, I looked up at the front of the room and looked at those steps, and I said, Ken, I'm having some trouble with number nine. <laughs> Old man's on the floor. I think, Jesus Christ, he's having a heart attack. <laughs> Laughing himself to death, you know. He gets up and he points that big old bony finger in his chest and the tears are coming out of his eyes. And he says, boy, you're on one. And don't you forget it, you know. <laughs> and it's times like these that the new member of Alcoholics Anonymous wished to God they had a car so they could crush their sponsors to death in the AA parking lot. Boom, you old goat, you know. <laughs> That's the way I came into AA. A little bit about me. I'm a Kansas kid. I was born and raised in a little town in Kansas. My grandparents uh, raised me. My grandfather was a doctor. Uh, loved me to pieces, but was one of these fellas that couldn't show it, you know. He was back in those days where you pulled up your own socks, you know, and, and he was he was very structured and very stern. My grandmother was just the opposite. She loved me to pieces, just loved me to pieces. And I asked my grandmother one time, I said, you know, what can I do to, to what can I do to make my grandmother or make my grandfather love me. And she said, oh, Creighton, your granddad loves you to pieces. And I said, but he doesn't show it. She says, why don't you make some good grades? Because I didn't make very good grades. So one nine-week period, and I was in the third or fourth grade, I made five A's and one B. Now, there's a star in the East when Creighton makes five A's and one B. But I made those five A's and one B, and at, at dinner time, we called uh, lunch dinner in those days in farm communities. Uh, 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 the evening meal was called supper. And so at dinner time, I came home for lunch and uh, showed my, my great, great card to my grandmother. And she looked at it, and she hugged me to her bosom, and she says, your granddad's going to be so proud of you. And I just bubbled because I knew that my granddad was just going to hug me. And my granddad came home and sat at his place at the table and sat down, picked up my great card, looked at it, looked at me, and guess what he said? That B needs some improvement. I'd never made a B in my life, let alone an A. And my grandmother gave him a stern look, and I was crushed. But yet, by the same token, that evening, in the second-story bedroom window, I heard my grandfather say, and he was out on the driveway talking to the lady that lived next door, a widow, Emma, Emma, Creighton made five A's and one B, and I'm so proud of him. And I thought to my little eight- or nine-year-old self, 
Why in the world couldn't you tell me that? He couldn't tell me that for the same reason I couldn't tell my children that I was so proud of them as they grew up. And you know, since I've been in AA, AA has done so much for me, but one of the biggest things it's done for me is I'm able to tell my children, God, I'm proud of you. God, I love you. I'm so proud. I'm so proud you're my son. I'm so proud you're my daughter. And grandkids, ho, 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 I tell them I'm the luckiest guy in the world because I have you for grandchildren. And I hug them and I kiss them. And you know, I wasn't able to cry for a long time. And now I cry the tears of joy when I see my grandkids. In fact, they open a new Safeway store, and I'll go down and cry for them because I'm so happy they're going to be successful, you know. Uh, my, uh, my prostate's bigger than my ego these days, and it's so much easier, you know. It's so much easier for, 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 guys, to, for guys that have been around this program to hug each other. And, and tears of joy, tears of joy come out of rooms like this. Tears that never would be able to shed through the, through the, through the guise of alcoholism. When we come into this program and, and when we read this old textbook and we work with others and we're so proud to, to be associated and watch somebody grow, watch somebody grow in the program. And what a, what a deal that is, you know. What a joy that is. What a gift from God that we get watching another man grow and, and seeing them go from nothing and seeing them get, you know, get their families back in some cases or even get a car, you know. And we become very, very thankful for this. Well, as I told you in 1950, I went to live with my dad. And I finished high school, and I got a football scholarship. And in order to take uh, 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 to take that uh, take it, uh, advantage of that football scholarship, I had to go to a little junior college up in the mountains of North Carolina to get my grades up. It was called a jock college. And now, where are you going? <laughs> I'll be back. <laughs> okay. Buy the tape, because you're going to miss this. <laughs> and I went to this little jock college, and uh, I met this lady sitting on the front row up here. And uh, she was, uh, uh, you know, she had great big blue eyes and long wavy hair. <laughs> and, uh, boy, she was, she was something else, I'll tell you. The problem, the problem was that she was miss, she was miss everything. She was the May Queen and this and that. I was a dumb jock, scared to death of her. And, uh, we never went together. Uh, and she was engaged to some goof. And, uh, <laughs> so we, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't run in the same circles, you know. Uh, but I admired her from afar. My heart went pity pat. Um, 
she and I, uh, 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 40 years later, went to a reunion, and we'd gone off, and we'd had lives, separate lives together, and we met at our 40th reunion, um, and uh, something happened, and about six months after that, we married. And Patty, won't you stand up? I want, I'd like for people to meet my wife. And that's the Patty of my life. She's something else. I uh, ended up playing football, University of North Carolina, football scholarship. Um, I, I used to say that I graduated. That's that's not true. I ran out of eligibility. Uh, and uh, the pros picked me up, and I went to the Washington Redskins, and I played uh, some professional football for the Washington Redskins. And back in those days, uh, we made $6,000 a year. Uh, and, you know, that was uh, not much money, but we sure had a heck of a good time. Uh, the military draft was coming along, and I was going to be drafted. And uh, I decided that, uh, uh, you know, that I wanted to do other things. And I ended up, to uh, make a long story even longer, uh, I ended up uh, uh, taking some tests for... Uh, uh, cadets, and uh, then on the way to uh, uh, on the way down to uh, uh, become a uh, flight cadet, um, I took drunk, and I ended up at Paris Island, South Carolina, as a grunt marine, and I ended up in the Marine Paratroopers, and uh, uh, finally, I guess they they thought I'd learned my lesson, and I got uh, I got that flight school. And I went to that flight school uh, uh, at Del Rio, Texas, and met Mike's dad uh, with our class, and uh, uh, graduated from that flight school, and uh, got into some awfully heavy drinking. And by this time, I'd met and married a wonderful lady, and I was flying jets, and uh, I was the most responsible person that you'd ever met. Uh, I had a wife and a child, a, a, a little girl, uh, and I could fly three feet off your wing and be the most responsible guy you ever met in your life. At high rates of airspeed, and I'd land that aircraft, uh, raise the canopy on it, and taxi that aircraft in, and with my arms up on the canopy rails and thinking, God, I wonder what the poor people out there are doing, you know. And I'd taxi that airplane in, I'd park it, get down and put, hang my equipment up, hang my helmet up and my parachute up and get ready to go home and then I was scared to death. Why? Hated responsibility of a house, of a home, of a wife. Didn't know how to act. Immaturity. I was uh, 23, 24 years old, growing on 13, maturity-wise. And I just landed an aircraft, a multi-million dollar aircraft, three feet off your wing. Most most mature, responsible guy that you'd ever meet. But I had to have a drink to, in, in order to get my courage up to go home. Now, there's something wrong with this picture. And I'd go to that barn that, after that second Everclear martini. I'd look in that back mirror, and all of a sudden, a metamorphosis had taken place. And a lot of guys in this room know what I'm talking about. 
And by the way, if you think I'm, 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 if you think denial leaves after 27 years, I still carry a comb. Okay? And I'd walk into that bar and I'd sit there and that long black wavy hair would come in, you know. I never had long black wavy hair when I had hair. Jesus, I'd give anything for your hair, you know. And I'd, I'd look in that, I'd look in that back mirror and all of a sudden those steely eyes, you know, and there's a cleft right here in the chin. And I'd re raise that arm and all of a sudden I was a lover and a killer. And I had 75 cents worth of chili running right down the front of me here. <laughs> Been impotent for about six months and couldn't lick my lips, you know. And I'd dream another dream and fall off another bar stool. And I'd look down at the, the bar and I'd see some pretty gal sitting down there and I'd say, yeah. And they'll leave, you know. But every, every once in a while, one would go, <laughs> right? been there, haven't you? Yeah. There's a live one up here. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, off into a meaningful relationship you'd go. <laughs> it's a heck of a way to live. And I'd dream another dream and fall off another bar stool. And my kid was having water on her post toasties because I didn't, I never had any money. And I'd play run, drink, run, what the alcoholic is famous for, because they hate themselves so bad. You know, in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that line uh, uh, in in how it works talks about we're constitutionally incapable of being honest with ourselves. That line bothered me for years and years and years and years. And I've come to believe this, rightly or wrongly. All that means is that I can't look in the mirror. I can't look in the mirror. Because when I look in the mirror, I see a monster. I see a monster that I hate. For whatever reason. And all of a sudden, through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been able in the last few years, to look in the mirror and sometimes, on good days, be able to wink. And that's a big change. That's worth the whole trip right there. To be able to look in the mirror and realize that the monster's gone away. And in its place is somebody that you not only like, but you halfway understand. And bigger and better than that, you accept what you're seeing. And the only way you're able to accept that is by living this program one day at a time to the best of your ability. Some days better than others. Most of the time we're running as fast as we know how to run. Doing the best as we know how to do. And that makes us able to look in the mirror and not see the monster. And all of a sudden, something happens, and we're constitutionally capable of being honest with ourselves 
before we even know it. And that's when we can get honest with other people. And when we become honest with other people, what happens? We like ourselves a heck of a lot better. We're better sponsors. We're better husbands. We're better fathers. We're better mothers. Simply because we've forgiven ourselves, but we've asked God in that third step prayer to relieve me of the bondage of self. And the mirror was the bondage of self in many, many, many cases. And take away my difficulties. And my biggest difficulty was forgiving me. Forgiving me for my past transgressions. Once I get past that, I'm able to live a little better life. Well, in those days, I didn't know how to do all that. I didn't know how to do that, all that at all. So I ran, drink, ran, and ran overseas. And six months after, I was, or six weeks after I was overseas, I was standing before my commanding officer, and he's, and he's not happy with me. We intuitively know. <laughs> and I was standing a stiff brace, and he looked up at me, and he says, You're a bum. And I thought the words out, they know. Because you see, I'd known I'd been a bum for a long time. I just didn't want you to know. And I spent money I didn't have buying drinks for other people that I didn't even like. Trying to make you like me. But they'd found out anyway. He said, you're cashing hot checks. You hadn't sent any money home. And your wife's going to divorce you. And if I had the power, I'd kick you out. And all of a sudden, uh, I was brought back to this country. And I was out of the Air Force. But the Marine Corps took me. They needed dummies. And I was back overseas. And this time there's a shooting war going on. And I went out to my fighter one morning, <clears throat> and I was pretty, I was pretty well hung over. In fact, I was so hung over, I was in a blackout. And I was going to fly with the best friend I'd ever had in my life that morning, and I crawled up on that aircraft, and I started to get in that cockpit, and I put my helmet up on the glare shield, but I couldn't figure out if I was going out on a mission or coming back from one. I was in a bad place. Twenty minutes later or so, we were airborne and <clears throat> high rate of airspeed. I came out of that blackout. I looked over and Terry was tucked in just exactly where he was supposed to be. As a good wingman should have been. And I'd flown up the wrong valley. And we picked up grand fire and I turned into my wingman and I killed him. <clears throat> And all of a sudden, the wise man was right. My soul was as black as night. The windows, our eyes were the windows to the soul. And my soul was as cold black as it could be. 
and I ended up in those hospitals, and I hated me, and 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 I had to drink. I I didn't have a choice. The two two best friends I'd ever had in my life started sitting on the end of my bed, and one was called guilt, and the other was called remorse. And they'd reach in my gut every morning and say, "Good morning, Creighton," and grab me. And I'd have to have that drink to make them go away, and it worked for a while. Worked for a long time. Because I could make him go away for a while. And I got out of that hospital, and by this time I'd remarried. I told that wife I'm going to turn over new leaf number 642. And I meant it. If I'd taken a lie detector test just like you, we would have passed. Because I desperately wanted to believe that I was going to turn over that new leaf. I didn't know how, and for a while I didn't drink. And we bought the, the pretty little house in Kansas City, and I went to work for that great airline. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to fit in more than anything. And I wanted to fit in this little neighborhood. So, you know, I was going to build a white picket fence, got the holes dug for the fence, and then I'd trip over the holes when I mowed the lawn because I was busy and never finished the fence. Drunks are busy people. Busy, busy, busy. <laughs> and then that day came that, uh, unfortunately, I uh, was sitting naked in my trees. <laughs> my tree, my yard, you know. <laughs> I'd fall out of the tree offering you a drink, you know. Want a drink? <laughs> I'd fall, revealing my shortcomings as I fell out of the tree. <laughs> and uh, it was unbecoming behavior. And my wife had me committed before she left. And I was in the real estate in St. Asylum. And my chief pilot came up and he says, Boy, we got to get you out of here before the newspapers get a hold of this. And they did. And I started flying international. Worn out my welcome in Kansas City, so I... I left and was flying international all over the world. Easy to explain. Golfers golf, fishermen fish, and drunks drink. How was Hong Kong, Creighton? Great bar. They'll build you a suit while you're sitting in the bar in Hong Kong. How was Johannesburg? Great bar. How was Paris? Super bar. How was Lima, Peru? Bad jail. Great bar. <laughs> all over the world. Never got out of a bar. And finally that day came in January of 1974, and I uh, ran an aircraft off of an icy runway uh, and put, uh, put the main gear uh, in the ditch. I would have done it sober, but they'd been looking for an excuse to get rid of me. I'd been looking for an excuse to get rid of me, and I got fired and got my license taken away from me. And then for two years, a lot of things happened to me that are none of your business, as a matter of fact. But suffice it to say that I had gotten a lot of trouble and I ended up under a bridge in Lady Kenmore box, dressed in my wardrobe, and I'd lost everything, including my ticket to fly. But the miracle of miracles, that we never know what's going to happen to us as we go through this journey. 
And three years into sobriety, that old sponsor of mine in Kansas City said to me, boy, I want you to go down to Oklahoma City and talk to the FAA. And I thought, Ken, you don't know what you're talking about. You know a lot of things, and you're a wise man, and I love you to pieces. But there's just certain things that you don't know about, and the FAA is one of them. And I'm not going down to Oklahoma City, you know. It's called fear is what it is. And so on my way to Oklahoma City, <clears throat> I thought, what am I going to tell these people? And Ken had told me, he says, when you meet with this doctor at the certificate branch, medical certificate branch, certification branch, I want you to tell him the truth for once in your life. And I walked into the office there, and, and uh, the secretary looked up, and she said, You must be Creighton Pendarvis. Boy, it scared me to death. You know, I thought, you know, I'm just a little paranoid. And she says, Doctor, I'll see you in just a minute. And the minute this old geezer comes, and he says, Come on in here, boy. And I went in there, and I sat down, and he says, What can I do for you? And I started telling him all about me. And about ten minutes into my spiel, he pulls something out of his pocket and flips it up on the desk. And I pick it up, and it says, To thine own self be true. And it had an X and a five and two ones on it. And Dr. Audie D. had been sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for 17 years. I said, You know Halstead? And he says, He was my first sponsor. <laughs> And I walked out of there with a certificate to fly airplanes that afternoon. And I was back in my profession. Things like that don't happen, do they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they do. And I went on and was able to rejoin the airlines and, and uh, ended up my career uh, flying airplanes, actually. Uh, and I don't say this in a braggadocious manner. I really don't. Because I had nothing to do with it. But God had everything to do with it. And you people, you people had everything to do with it. Because if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't know about God. And if it hadn't been for you, I wouldn't know about sobriety. And I wouldn't hear the stories that I've heard in 27 years. The stories of miraculous recoveries. And I wouldn't have gotten to meet this old man right sitting right there or that old fellow right there or get to meet a kid whose dad got me through flight school. These things wouldn't have happened. And like Smitty said last night, there's not coincidences. There's just miracles. There's just miracles, you see. Eleven years, almost to the day, from the from the day that I crawled out from underneath that bridge, I was made vice president of Northwest Airlines of pilot training. How'd that happen? It happened because I took one step at a time, wanting to take twenty, with an ego bigger and arrogance and, and pomposity that would just. Uh, and getting knocked down, two steps forward and one back. And the most important thing was not picking up the first drink. 
and some days just hanging in there. Some things that have happened to me along the way also of benefits. I had <clears throat> two daughters. After 17 years, I wrote a letter of a man to that one, to my oldest daughter. And I got a letter back that said, Dear Daddy, I love you. From a daughter I hadn't seen in 17 years. And she says, I want to see you. Because, you see, I understand about alcoholism. And you're my dad. And we were, we were, we were reunited. And I'd like to tell you that everything was the same. It wasn't. But at least we have a speaking relationship and we respect each other and we love each other. And I don't see her as much as I'd like to because she, she was adopted by the man that married her mother. And she doesn't bear my name anymore. But she's still my kid. And she's doing well. And she's 40 years old now. And doing super up in up in Pennsylvania. That second little gal <clears throat> hated my guts. That's putting it mildly. Because you see, I deserted she and her mother also. Just before her mother had me committed to the insane asylum. And she used to send me birthday cards and Christmas cards and call me on Father's Day. Happy birthday, you GDSOB. Happy Father's Day, you GDSOB. And then her mother called and she said, Creighton, uh, Tracy's got anorexia and you need to come up and, and, and be part of the treatment program in this tr treatment facility. And I went up there to Spokane, Washington, where she was in 1986, 87. And um, I came back from that, and I was so full of hate, not at her, but at myself. The monster was back in the mirror. And I went to David, uh, who had become my sponsor, because, you see, I'd gotten back with the airline in Dallas, Texas. And I had to have a sponsor, not a long-distance sponsor, but somebody that I could look on one-on-one. -on -one. His name was David Aronofsky in Dallas, Texas. And Gracie, his uh, ever-loving uh, black belt Al-Anon wife, <laughs> was there. And I, and I said, you know, what am I going to do? And he says, talk to Gracie. And it just so happened that, that uh, a lady by the name of uh, 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 Elsa Chamberlain was in town that weekend. And those two gals took me to my first Al-Anon meeting. And I introduced myself in that Al-Anon meeting as Creighton Pendarvis, an alcoholic, and I still got the scars. <laughs> literally, literally, I've got scars on my shin where that old lady kicked me under the table, I mean hard, and says, with those pretty little thin blue lips and those glassy, glassy blue eyes, Elsa Chamberlain says, Creighton, we do not introduce ourselves as alcoholics in this meeting. It's for the Alanons. And I've never forgotten that. <laughs> and I've been an Alanon ever since. So I'm a double winner. 
And what happened was I, I found out it's a million miles from my head to my heart. And the program of the Al-Anon family group taught me that that daughter didn't really hate me. But she, it was, she loved me. And she was frustrated because she'd been cheated out and she had resentments because she'd been cheated out of a lifestyle because I had deserted she and her mother. I'd like to tell you that that daughter recovered from anorexia. They had told her she would never have children. I have two wonderful grandchildren. I'd also like to share with you one of the joys and the miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous that the day she married, I walked her down the aisle of a chapel in San Diego, California, one of the beautiful missions. The only problem was she married a <coughs> Air Force captain. <laughs> and at the wedding reception, it's, as we all know, it's, um, it's the uh, ritual that the bride and groom get the first dance. And it just so happened that she came to me and she said, would you, would you have the first dance with me, Dad? And the music was, you're the wind beneath my wings. Only in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous did things like this happen. Only in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous did guys named Creighton Pendarvis, who lived in a box and didn't give Two pinches of nothing for anybody except himself. And who hated the monster in the mirror. Can ever, can ever stand here this afternoon and, 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 and be part of a program that saves lives. Don't ever doubt that. That saves lives and restores families and gives you another chance and an opportunity to talk to a God that you may not ever, ever, ever have understood before. But look in the faces around you and see the joy and know that there's something besides a nothingness out there that causes these things to happen. And get to meet the guy sitting right here who was there when this whole thing gets started and then listen to guys like Keith this morning We'll hear cease this morning, and for God's sake, stay for Sunday morning and hear this lady right over here. Stories not only of recovery, but of hope and joy and the fellowship of just feeling good. Rick is from God. Thanks be to you, God, for my life, that I live in a home and not in a box under a bridge, or in a cell in an institution. And thanks be to you, God, for carrying me to AA's doorstep. And thanks, God, for my children and my grandchildren who love and respect me. And thanks again, God, for allowing me to retire from a wonderful business that I love so much, that of flying. And thanks, God, for my May Queen, who's now my wife and my closest ally.
but most of all, God, thanks be to you for never having forgotten my name. Thanks, Marietta Brownup. God bless. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.